You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Nicola Cornick on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called The Last Daughter of York. And I have to tell you, Nicola, this book completely took me by surprise. Um, I love historical fiction. I love learning uh, about new places and, and times that I have not yet really dug into and discovered. And... Um, this book really captured my imagination because, you know, there's some mystery. There's uh, there, there's something other going on uh, constantly throughout this book, and it it really uh, was a joy to read. And I'm I'm recommending it to everyone. I, I know folks are going to love this book. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much! What a what a wonderful welcome that is. I'm just blown away <laughs> that you that you enjoyed the book so much. I really I really love that you that you liked it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, before we jump into talking about the book and all that good stuff, uh, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Hmm. Well, yeah, that's that is really interesting um, because I don't think I ever articulated in my own mind, certainly not when I was younger, that I wanted to be a writer. I think I wrote. Um, I, I was a, a huge reader, and I was a, a and I started writing when I was a child. But I don't think at any point I stopped and thought about it. It just felt like something that was instinctive and natural to me to sit down and and write things. Um, and I mean, I, I did kind of, I, actually, I was quite secretive about it, I think, when I started. I didn't share them with anybody. Uh, but later on, I started to share my my stories with people. Um, but it actually took me a really long time be- before I thought of myself as a writer. It was writing was something that I loved and something I would do for fun and enjoyment. But I didn't consider myself to be a writer and it seems extraordinary to me now looking back that I didn't I, I just didn't didn't think about it like that. And yet at the same time, I was so completely engrossed in it, if that makes sense. I mean, sometimes it doesn't really make sense to me actually thinking about it, knowing what I do now and having been having had a writing career for such a long time. Um, but yes, it wasn't until my first book, well, I'd, I'd sent off my very first manuscript, I think, and that was the point where I actually sat down and thought, oh, you know, I, I could be a writer in the sense of a published writer, uh, which I think is quite different. It's a different thing in some ways from being a writer, being a storyteller, certainly. Uh, so, yeah, it was something that was just a complete sort of instinct and yet not anything I ever articulated until I was well into the process. Um, you you said that the, it's a distinct uh, difference being a, a storyteller and being a published writer. What what is that delineation for you? What what is it that separates the two, other than well, obviously publishing a book through a publisher? Yes. But you, you know, I mean, uh, what what is the what is it that feels different? 
Um, well, that, that that is interesting as well, because I think it might be a false sort of distinction in my mind. But certainly to me, I know lots of people who are amazing storytellers and they tell their stories in all kinds of different ways. So not just in books, but maybe, you know, literally telling stories, sort of oral storytellers or people who are, are great raconteurs or, or whatever, uh, as well as people who, who write in, in many different forms. So I think... Um, yeah, I, I, I think there are so many people who who are amazing storytellers. And I love that. I love that there's that richness um, in the craft, in the sort of in that there's that creativity there. Um, being a published writer, I suppose, as a career is different in my mind, because at that point um, it can become a job. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but but I I don't think necessarily you have to be a published writer to call yourself a writer or a storyteller. Sure, that there there is that that uh, that element of a business that comes into it, isn't mm. it? And and you mm-hmm. you have to think of yourself as, uh, you know, not only as the, the kind of whimsical nature of <laughs> of being a storyteller, or you know that, but there's a you know, there's there's a there's a commercial aspect to it, and and that's that's not bad to say that, but it's just the reality of it. Yes, I think that's exactly it. I mean, I think that's the the leap that you can sometimes make. Certainly, the leap that I made from being somebody who sat down and enjoyed writing stories for fun and thought of it as as a hobby, really, um, and then suddenly thinking, well, at some point I might want to do this for a living. Um, and then it becomes a, a job or a business even. And it requires other skills and other, um, other thought in, in the process. It's, it's a separate process, really, from the, the imaginative process of the writing. Um, so, uh, yes, it, it, as you say, not, not in the least a, a bad thing and an amazing thing to be able to do for a living if, if you're fortunate enough. So, uh, which, you know, is it, great. But that doesn't mean that people who, who aren't in that situation aren't writers. I think it's really important that, you know, well, sure. people, all, all sorts of people can think of themselves as writers and storytellers, can't they? Which is which is great because it adds richness to the whole to the whole the whole idea of it, really. Of course, of course. Um, Nicola, you you spent uh, a, a bit of time working in academia um, and then went on to write historical fiction. What, what was it that first intrigued you about history that that made you, you know, really want to dedicate um, a, a good portion of your life to studying history and then writing stories about historical, uh, you know, characters and places? It's it's funny, isn't it? I think sometimes you're just drawn to a particular subject or a particular genre in writing. And for me, history, as long as I can remember, was something that appealed to me. And I don't I don't know why particularly. I don't come from a I mean, I come from a family that, that you know, they took me to, to interesting places when I was a child. And I think that kind of helped. Um, I know one of the biggest influences on me was my was my grandmother who read um, historical novels. She was the only one in the family who read historical fiction um, and she would hide her books away because my parents were both academics and they were a little bit, a little bit 
well you know not quite approving of, of genre fiction um <laughs> and so she had her all her all her genre novels hidden in the wardrobe in the bedroom and I found them when I was a child and they were amazing I loved it so you know that was like discovering an entirely new world but it was always the historical ones that, that fascinated me and the kind of idea of how did we get to be where we are and who we are um and what's made us like that and what's happened before so that became my my kind of thing in the family. My my father was a mathematician. My mother was a linguist. So history became my thing, um, and that was that was great. It felt really sort of special to me. Um, and um, yeah, and and I and I kind of never looked back. I also had an amazing history teacher when I was quite young as well, which did make a a really big difference because she made history like storytelling. Um, I also had a terrible history teacher when I was older who almost <laughs> put me off it completely but luckily yet not quite because uh, I think that can make such a difference as well. Uh, so yes they all fostered that sort of love of history in me and so when I came to want to study and uh, write really that th- it was it was just something I knew that was what what I would what I wanted to write about um, and yeah and I think that that kind of that's that's sort of stayed with me there's so much to explore there so many worlds to sort of create and explore it's it's infinite and, and exciting for me to to think about history I think and so much to learn from it if only we did if only <laughs> if only <laughs> yes. so, Nicola looking back on that first novel that you wrote and uh and and that went on to get published and then open this this whole new um you know aspect to your life and and this oh. new career and and all of that what was it that was the the impetus that that got you to to write that first novel you know you're you're an academic you're you're you know I would think um you know happy with the way life is going what what was it that you know what was it about writing that nagged at you that that you had to write that first novel Mm. well my I started writing my first novel when I was about 18 so it took me 12 years to get it published um and 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 I and I sort of I suppose it, it was interesting because it was a throwback to kind of how I'd felt when I was 18. Um, I was deeply obsessed with Regency romances and with the, the writing of Georgette Hayer particularly. And, and, and that's those sort of uh, those those sort of books, which I, I just absolutely loved, again, which I'd found in my grandmother's wardrobe. Um, and I wanted to write one myself because it was such fun. And so I started doing that in my teens and then I just carried on. And then, of course, like you say, work and sort of things get in the way, you know, getting married, taking another job, moving house, whatever. And so these 12 years were kind of going past and there's this book sitting there that's like an alternative world, really, to all the stuff that I was doing in my real life. Um, And I didn't want to lose that. So every so often I'd pick it up and I'd do some more work on it. So by the time that the book finally was accepted and and came out, I, I, I kind of... I'd sort of moved on. Um, obviously, I'd moved on a lot in years. I'd kind, I'd kind of moved on in my reading and in my interests in my life, but I still retained this absolute love of Regency romance, um, and so, uh, so was thrilled when, uh, when, when my first Regency romance was was picked up and, and published. Um, so yeah, it was something that was always there. I think. I mean, I was had a, you know, I've had a, I had a very interesting and, and a great career in. Uh, in academia for 15 years but 
at the same time, when I look back on it and compare it to being a writer, the writer, when I look at that, the writing kind of is in technicolor and that's sort of in muted tones. So I think, you know, I was right to make the change. When the, you you said you started writing your first novel at 18. Was that the, mm. the same novel that was your first published novel? It was, yes. And I, I kind of did all the things that I would never advise um, writers to do now, like go back over the same piece of work again and again and again. You know, all the stuff that they say, you know, don't do that. Try something different. Um, but I had no clue. I didn't belong to any writing organisations. I didn't. I hadn't studied the craft of writing. I just kept on with this same book. It's no wonder it took 12 <laughs> years to get it right. But uh, yes, so uh, so yeah, it was it's kind of felt quite an achievement in the end to actually get it get it published after three three different three attempts anyway. It was turned down twice and then it was accepted the third time. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com Well, that that is a, a fascinating um, story of of um, diligence, and um, I, I I don't even know how to describe it because <laughs> I, I hear from so many authors who who write a book and uh, try to get it out to the world. Um, it doesn't get accepted by anyone, and they just go back and write another book, mm, and they just mm. keep writing books until they hit upon the one. Uh, you know, for maybe they become better writers. Maybe they just come upon a story that is more acceptable to the market at the moment. You know, th there's a lot of factors that that you know can can be a play from any you know day to day. Um, when you look back, do you do you ever wonder um, like why you stuck with that book and and you know kept working on it and you know working on yourself as a writer until the book you know, became what it needed to be instead of just, 
you know, discarding that idea and going with a new one. I, I wonder what, and, and, you know, maybe it's a rhetorical question, but I just, I wonder what it is that motivates us to, um, to believe in a story enough that, you know, maybe it's not where it needs to be finally, uh, but it will get there as opposed to maybe I just haven't hit upon the right idea. Well, honestly, in my in my case, I think a lot of it was just ignorance. I have to be honest about that because I didn't understand. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. About, no, well, yeah, and, and you know, you you do look back, don't you? I mean, we all do, I'm sure, and and think, gosh, I can't believe that I didn't realize I was so naive about the the the, the business of publishing when I was when I was first published, um, and so. I, I I just I really loved the story. I think I probably would have had to have done in order to to keep going with it. But it, it you know all all the this kind of advice that I that I now know and I give to other people about you know try something else and 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 you're right of course I I, I didn't know anything about the market and what might be appropriate to the market or suitable. I just wrote what I loved. Um, and and it never occurred to me to 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 sort of to learn more about it. I mean, as I say, I can't believe how naive I was now, and indeed how lucky I was, to be honest. Because I think it it, it was it, it, in a way I didn't deserve for that book to be published because I hadn't <laughs> done my research into into the business of of publishing. Um, and I think I am an incredibly determined person as well. I think that, I mean, and I always say that to people as well, you do need to believe in yourself and you need to be determined. Um, it doesn't always work out, but, uh, and, and it did take a long time. Um, so yes, I mean, I do it very differently knowing what I do now, of course, but, um, but yes, that was, that was kind of how it, how it worked for me. And um, yeah, I think I was very lucky. I was very lucky indeed. <laughs> So how many books have you published now, Nicola? I stopped counting after about 40. Wow. Because um, I've been <laughs> writing for um, 1998 was when that first one came out. So I have been writing for a long time. And when I wrote for Mills and Boone, um, I wrote two books a year uh, at least, and then sometimes sometimes more. I have slowed down considerably since since then. And uh, in the last in the last five or six years when I've been writing my dual time mysteries, uh, they they take so much more. Uh, time and effort and research and also planning because I'm not a I'm not an author who finds planning a novel easy it's not a strength of mine um, to to structure a book uh, so I get myself into a mess and then have to stop and go over it all again uh, so it takes me a lot longer now but yes I I have written I wrote a lot of uh, regencies and historical romance before I moved over to the historical the dual time mysteries so I've I've met a number of authors who who write um, dual timeline mysteries, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know that I've ever met someone who uh, who says that that is their genre. Um, the, like they they purposefully write dual timeline mm-hmm. mysteries, you know, mm-hmm. one after the other. Um, mm-hmm. What what is it about that uh, that kind of literary setup? Um, that you love so much and that you, uh, you know, have, have really carved a niche for yourself in? I really love the idea of a historical mystery that's solved in the present. So one of the one of the things that I've always loved as a historian is kind of that space. That, you know how uh, some people think that history is all fact. And of course, 
it isn't. There are lots of spaces between the things that we know that leave a gap for the ima for your imagination. Um, and so there's a lot of historical mysteries. There's a lot of things that we don't know, like in 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 the last daughter of York, um, what what on earth happened to to the princes in the tower during the reign of Richard III. We just don't know the answers to that. Um, and rather than write a, a book that's set entirely in the past where I put forward a, a, a solution or a, a suggestion of what might happen in the story, I like I very much like the idea of contemporary people looking at that mystery from the distance of however many hundreds of years, thinking about it, working out what we do and what we don't know, uh, and then trying to come up with a to, with a solution to it. So that's why the, the dual time frame for me works so well for, for that particular um, idea, the, the, the idea of the, the solving of the mystery. I think it just lends itself to, to that sort of element of, of detection, really. Um, how do you go about finding these these historical mysteries that you that you're going to solve in the in the present time? Um, because the you know in the new book um, that we're going to talk about in just a minute, um, the Last Order of York, uh, this is a fascinating mystery. Uh, how do you dig up these these little nuggets of historical facts <laughs> and and you know historical um, you know mystery that you know still shrouded in a little of you know we just we don't know exactly mm. what happened here. Mm. Well, I think there are some mysteries that are bigger than others and certainly where I come from, because I come from the north of England um, and right from the earliest time I was aware of King Richard III was a really big sort of figure in the history of the north. Um, and so this is a mystery that that's kind of, um, well, you know, people have been wondering what on earth happened with the princes in the tower for for hundreds, ever since they disappeared for hundreds of years. So some of the mysteries are big ones, you know, like, like we've all got big national mysteries, haven't we? Um, others are small things that I come across in my reading. So for one for one of my books, I was fascinated. I was fascinated by the Tudors and by what had happened um, to the daughter of Queen Catherine Parr, the sixth wife of um, Henry VIII, who she then remarried and after Henry had died and had a child and nobody knew what had happened to this child. So every so often I'll come across these sort of little mysteries or smaller mysteries and think and that just that just sparks the thought in my mind wow that's so interesting I I want to research that and find out what happened to this person and then transform that into a, a fictional account of of their life or or a, a, a kind of a suggestion of what might have happened to them so I usually find them through my my reading or um just I mean it's interesting because at the moment I'm I haven't decided what my next mystery is going to be so it's particularly pertinent that you should ask me this now and how I find <laughs> them because I'm thinking I don't know I, I don't know I don't know how I'm going to find my next mystery I don't know what it's going to be but I do know that something out of my reading of a particular period or something will just jump out at me a, a person or a place or something and I'll just think ah yes that's it that's the next that's the next mystery that's going to come along. So, so tell us about um, the setup of this new book. You you begin with this mystery, um, but then you know the the nature of the dual timeline, um, you know, tells us that there's there's something going on in in the present time that mm. this uh, ancient mystery affects. Um, I, I, tell me what it was that that intrigued you about it and how you um, you know came to to set up the novel. 
Well, with the last daughter of York, it all started with um, a place just down the road from Minster Lovell, which is a ruined castle that belonged to uh, Francis Lovell, who was the closest friend of King Richard III. So actually, it started, this whole book started with a place. And one of the curious things about Francis Lovell is that he disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to him, just as nobody knows what happened to the princes in the tower in the reign of Richard III. So this theme of disappearance started to go through my mind. Um, and there were all these people and legends and stories connected with Minster Lovell, which was all, which were all about people disappearing. Um, so that then kind of made me think, well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a contemporary story where there's a theme of disappearance? And that is obviously what happens in The Last Daughter of York. The, the heroine of the contemporary um, of the contemporary element of the story is trying to work out what happened when her sister disappeared 10 years previously. So really kind of disappearances and, 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 and that sort of idea is, is at the heart of the story. Uh, so then I took that idea and kind of um, linked what was happening in the present. It's really hard trying to describe it, isn't it, without giving anything away. <laughs> um, what what happened in the present? I mean, people who know the story, who know about, there's a lot of keen Ricardians out there and a, a lot of people who know about the story of the princes in the tower and how Richard III took the throne and how they were uh, locked up and nobody saw them again. And then, of course, there's a lot of of, of discussion about who was responsible for their disappearance and what happened to them. So, so yes, so this this idea of they disappeared, Francis Lovell had disappeared, the, the sister Caitlin in the story had disappeared. I wanted to kind of devise a plot that drew all of these things together and, and brought the modern story into line with this big historical mystery. So that in the process of finding out what happened to her, her sister, um, Serena also finds out what happened in this huge mystery uh, 500 years before. So, so um, set, set up the, um, um, the book for us. If someone is not familiar with, with this historical story, um, when they, when they open the book, who do we meet and uh, what, what is the journey that we go on? Okay. So when they open the book, in fact, it starts, quite a long time before that. So it starts right back in the 13th century, again at Minster Lovell Hall, because that's at the heart of, that's that's the ruined house that's at the heart of the story. Um, and the beginning of it is is kind of a bit like a folklore legend type idea, the story of the mistletoe bride, um, somebody who, uh, she, the, the, the heir to, the, to Minster Lovell thinks that he's found this beautiful rich heiress to marry uh, and it turns out that she's a thief and she steals uh, a particularly precious artefact uh, from, from the castle um, and that is the artefact that kind of has the power to draw all these threads together so that's how it starts by introducing the lodestar which is this, this, this stone that's said to possess magical powers and then we move from that to the story in the present day, which is uh, Serena uh, getting the call to come home because there's news about her sister who had disappeared 10 years previously. Um, and and then, as I say, then she goes she goes back to Minster Lovell to try to recover the memories that she had of what had happened 10 years before um, and had lost through the trauma of it. Um, and at the same time, she starts to uncover the connections between her family history and 
um, the family, the, this this royal family back in uh, back in the the Wars of the Roses. So she starts to realise that this this lodestar, the, um, the this powerful artifact, has had some kind of influence on things that had happened throughout history at all of these times. So yes, it's quite it's it's kind of a complicated. It's a bit like a tapestry. I I kind of think of my. Um, I think of my books as a, as a tapestry that knits together the modern story with the historical story. So as Serena goes along trying to discover what happened to Caitlin, at the same time, she's also uncovering all these other things she didn't know about her family and kind of, oh, well, this is a kind of the history of, of, of my grandfather, which I never realised. And where did he come from? And so it, it brings in all of these sort of elements of family history and genealogy and history. It's really I think it's quite interesting because it's hard, interesting that you you said people don't tend to kind of define themselves by saying, you know, I write in the dual time genre. Uh, and it is actually very hard to pin down the genre for a book like this. But I think it's the kind of thing that would appeal to people who like that combination of history and mystery. And there's some romance in there as well, of course. Um, and, and just the way that that's all sort of uh, knitted together, to hopefully to create a really interesting tapestry at the end. One thing that I loved about the book, Nicola, is that the setting, um, the historical setting, is uh, it, it takes place before the the Tudor rule of of, of England, mm. and mm-hmm. it's uh, it gives us a glimpse into what the society was like before that, because um, I think that time period, the Tudor uh, rule time period, gets a lot of interest. And it, it's interesting to see what what life was like before that. Um, and you really immerse us into um, what life was like then. And, and uh, what are some of the, uh, you know, because one one thing about historical fiction is that, you know, being able to make me feel like I'm immersed in the story without me feeling like I'm just reading a history textbook. Um, right. <laughs> you, you know, so it's, it's a, I, I would imagine it's a, a, a balancing act of, mm. uh, you know, how much detail do I give them without just, just being overbearing about, you know, the buttons, you know, on a, on a, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, because I've read books like that, and you're like, "Wow, yes. we're on the third page of describing the buttons." Okay, what you know? Um, how do you balance? You know, um, kind of giving us the texture of, mm. of the time mm-hmm. period um, without overwhelming us with details that just don't matter. Yeah, I think that's one of the key things about writing historical fiction, isn't it? Um, you need to know all the things like the buttons or whatever, but you don't necessarily need to bring it into the story. But if you know it, it kind of underpins everything that you're, if a button can underpin something, and everything that you're writing. So I think it's the foundation somehow has to be there. And then you can just refer to it very lightly, drop in a detail here or there um, to kind of build up that framework that sort of again the texture of the tapestry if you like to make it make it feel like rich in a real a real world um but for me i think i mean thinking about the character of anne who's the heroine in the historical bit of of this book um for me it was all about getting into her head and okay she was sort of you know like um i'm just trying to think 
well, she was very young at the very beginning of the book. So, you know, there would be things that as a child, she would be entirely, would be the same as you would experience feelings and emotions that you would experience now at that age and things that would be completely different for her. So that to me was the way into it, really. What would be the experience of a child in in the middle of the, the 15th century, growing up in, in a castle in the north of England, you know, pretty well connected, being married off at the age of eight or something, ghastly like that mm. you know the, all these things uh, trying to get into the head of that person and experience it and see it through their eyes and that that way you kind of draw the the picture of the world that they're living in uh, but it, it's still familiar to people because they can identify with some of the emotions and then of course with others they're kind of thinking oh well, you know that's different and that also draws you in as well so yeah historical detail always to be used very sparingly but needs it needs to be there um in order to so that so that you can create this amazing framework that your characters move through but but for me it's always all about the characters and their experience and and what a roller coaster ride of a story this is um the last daughter of york when you're hearing this uh this show uh is available everywhere now and you can grab it uh, we're gonna have links to it in the show notes where you can grab it in kindle edition or um you know hold the paper copy in your hand uh also audiobook have you gotten to hear the audiobook yet nicola i haven't i'm really looking forward to it because i uh, i've had some amazing audiobook narrators for my books and uh, and, and I, I can't wait to hear this one so uh, yeah i'm 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 eagerly anticipating that I know I can't wait to experience the book uh, all over again uh, by listening to the audiobook and and going on on uh, the journey that the narrator takes us on. It's going to be fantastic. Mm. I just know it. Um, Nicola, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Uh, well, I have a website at um, nicolacornick.co.uk. Um, I'm on Facebook as Nicola Cornick and Twitter as Nicola Cornick and Instagram as Nicola Cornick. <laughs> and I, I absolutely adore chatting to people about writing and history and and the various uh, bits of it that they're interested in and, and sort of just sharing all this um, all, all this sort of historical chat um, and I also blog with the word wenches you can find you can find all of us on online as well so uh, yes uh, um, I'd love to hear from people if they'd like to get in touch well, we will link up all those places in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Uh, Thank you. The Last Daughter of York, available everywhere now when you're hearing this. Go grab it today. Visit your local bookstore or use the links in the show notes um, and and be sure to get it. And, you know, it, we're in getting into the gift-giving season. <laughs> this would be a fantastic gift for those historical fiction lovers uh, that, uh, that are in your family or friends group. Nicola, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show we're going to send everyone to see you and to pick up their copy of the last daughter of york thank you so much for taking time to come on the show thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from richard glebe's the jason crane series mather steepled his hands you asked to join us once hedwick leaned forward eagerly the appointed does that appeal yes do you even know what we do? My grandmother used to say that you control the world. That's not far off. But why? To what end? I don't know. Power? 
Pour me a bourbon. Mather reached into his briefcase and produced a file folder. I want to tell you one story. Have you ever heard of Centralia, Pennsylvania? No. He produced a photo for Hedwig's inspection. Spring of 1962. A pretty little town, wasn't it? Whitewash and ticky-tacky, pastel housewives and perfect lawns. A mining community, mostly. Coal. He turned over a second photo. A lovely young woman. There was a single witch in Centralia named Anna Lively. Anna had a green thumb. She could make her garden grow, whisper to a flower, and send it shooting from the ground like that. Just lovely. But she was discovered. That spring, a boy named Bobby Avery received a Bell and Howell Zoomatic movie camera for his 11th birthday. Bobby amused himself by filming his neighbors, sometimes without their knowledge, through windows and over garden fences. Twelve seconds of film. Just a girl and her garden patch and one swiftly blooming rose. It killed the town. Bobby showed it to his friends. Children believe readily. Bobby was the first to die. Parents looked into it, watched the film themselves, and they began to die. Anna disappeared. Perhaps they attacked her. Perhaps she escaped. But even in her absence, knowledge of a true witch was running wild through the population, as if Anna had beckoned it herself to grow verdant and spread. The Great Curse had killed 64 Centralians by the 1st of June. The footage was offered to a national news organization. That was the precipice. It might have been shown in prime time, between Leave It to Beaver and My Three Sons. We came very close to another worldwide calamity, but we were fortunate. One of our own was in place at the network. He alerted his superiors, and they ended the situation. Do you know how? I'm afraid to ask. Mather laid down another photo. This is Centralia today. It was an aerial view of a forest. Endless trees and underbrush cut through by lanes of pavement. Just a maze of cracking asphalt, like the foundations of Sodom, ripped bare by the wrath of God. Only a cemetery remained, on a hill overlooking the former town. A white marble angel stood among the graves, grieving for the ruins below, like Lot's wife, turned to salt. You destroyed the whole town? Not I. This was well before my time, but yes. Just as you'd cauterize a wound to stop a patient from bleeding to death. We blamed it on an uncontrollable mine fire deep below the earth. We actually set the coal burning in case someone investigated. It burns today. Touch any of those streets and you'll find them hot, the asphalt melting as if the town sat just above perdition. It's not something we're proud of, but it was necessary to save the world. Centralia, Pennsylvania, and everyone who'd seen that film had to be sacrificed. Mather collected the photos. So, that is why the appointed exist, and that is what we do. Still want to join? <laughs>